0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: From Sage Magazine, you're listening to Habitations. I'm Noah Sokol. My guest today, Abram Lusgarten, is a senior investigative reporter for ProPublica. Lusgarten has reported extensively on the oil and gas industries. He has been one of the leading journalists in the U.S. to investigate the safety risks of fracking for natural gas. This reporting has earned him a 2009 George Polk Award for Environmental Reporting, a National Press Foundation Award for Best Energy Reporting, and was a finalist for Harvard's Goldsmith Prize. Les has also covered the BP and Deepwater Horizon tragedy in the Gulf of Mexico, the subject of his 2012 book called Run to Failure, BP and the Making of the Deepwater Horizon Disaster. He is also the author of China's Great Train, Beijing's Drive West, and the Campaign to Remake Tibet which was the recipient of a MacArthur grant for international reporting. Luskarton is currently covering water issues in the western United States. Abram Luskarton, welcome to Habitations. Thanks for having me. As we speak, the state of California, where you currently live, is in the midst of its worst drought in history. You tweeted recently, last summer was a warm-up. The west drought is about to get painful. How do you think the coming summer in California is going to look compared to last summer, the summer of 2014? I think it's
0: going to look about the same uh, from what you can see on the surface. But the reason I say it's about to get painful is because I think the biggest problem that's facing California is the gradual depletion of its groundwater while there's not a lot of water on the surface. So the drought will continue. The reservoirs are going to look abysmal, and you're going to see a lot of pictures all summer long of people who want to go on camping and boating vacations and, you know, have to trek down over 400 feet of dirt bank to get to the water. Um But what's happening across California and across a lot of the West is that uh, uh, the aquifers are being substantially depleted. Water levels in California are dropping uh, by about 30 vertical feet a year. And there's places where the land on top of them has dropped uh, over 75 feet in the 100 years or so that agriculture has been pumping that water.
1: The governor of California, Jerry Brown, just instituted a series of water restrictions on California residents. What are those water restrictions?
0: Well, they're going to require uh, uh, municipalities and towns across the state to cut their water usage by twenty five percent. That's kind of on average, and depends on um, you know on what those local municipalities have done so far. Uh, some will have to do more. Some will have to do less. Um, They're going to incentivize removal of lawns. Uh, Grass lawns are a huge user of water, domestic use anyway, in California and in the West. So they're going to uh, develop an incentive program that essentially pays or compensates people to replace their lawns with uh, desert-appropriate landscaping. Um, and then there's a bunch of small measures, uh, which range from uh, you can't be served water in a California restaurant unless you ask for it these days. Uh, there'll be restrictions on on how and what you can use to irrigate your, you know,
1: your own yard or garden or, or things like that. So this drought's been a severe issue for the last number of years. Why did uh, Governor Brown just institute these measures now in 2015? It's actually a good question, and my first reaction when um,
0: the new announcement was made was that what he uh, is going to now implement was really appropriate—not um, just a couple of years ago, but 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Uh, he's, uh, you know, an individual, a politician, you know, who I know knows water very well, knows the issues well, and I've been at, event, at events and heard him speak, and I know it's something that you know he pretty genuinely cares about. Um, the politics of water in California are. Uh, inexplicably complicated um, agriculture is uh, the largest user by far and and one of the most important industries in the state uh, the oil and energy industry is also a significant user uh, also an extremely significant part of, of the state's economy um, and there's a lifestyle uh, that you know in California uh, that that um, uh, does not welcome the idea of um, environmental limits or any kind of sort of limits on on um, you know how how these cities want to grow and how people want to be when they're there and all those things I think just make it a little bit of a politically difficult subject for him to get into
1: Let's talk about that lifestyle a bit more. I read recently that despite uh, California residents being aware of the severity of this drought and these new water restrictions, the latest numbers show that residents in Southern California are actually increasing their water usage. What do you think can explain this kind of behavior when people are aware of the severity of the situation? I saw
0: similar numbers uh, of a very pathetic decline across the whole state for the first couple months of this year. On one hand there's a there's a disconnect Um, it's very easy to pretend that there isn't a drought Uh, it doesn't necessarily affect uh, most people's daily routines or their daily interactions or their daily habits Um, so unless you make a concerted effort to be aware get informed uh, and then do something about it it's very easy to kind of live in denial Um, but a second part of of the reason is uh, what I said a moment ago, that most of the water use lies in agriculture. So the opportunity for savings um, is diminished as soon as you're talking about residential use anyway. Um, And uh, it would take a whole set of additional and more aggressive policies to substantially cut back that, that residential or municipal water use in a way that would make a big difference in terms of the
1: state's overall consumption. Hydraulic fracturing is another um, practice in California that is, is, is extremely water intensive in addition to agriculture. Are there any restrictions currently being placed in California now on the oil and gas industry? None that I've heard of. And it's certainly something that's coming up in a lot of conversations. I'm
0: hearing uh, talk about it uh, in some of the interviews and talk shows that are um, you know, addressing water issues. Um but the fracking process that I'm familiar with in California doesn't use as much water comparatively to some of the other states where it's a, a very large water consumptive issue. Um, and uh, fracking itself is not quite as prevalent in California. Um, there are thousands of wells that are fracked, but it's not the same as the tens of thousands of wells that are that are uh, fracked in other states. So not to diminish it as an issue, um, but my biggest uh concern actually when it gets to the oil and gas industry is what they do with the wastewater and how that threatens water supplies. Um, They do inject a lot of that waste um, from fracking and also from the oil drilling uh, that's happening in the southern part of the Central Valley in California back underground. Um, We know that it contaminates aquifers. Some of those are being contaminated with the consent uh, and oversight of the state and the federal government. Um,
1: there's, There's a long track record of problems there. Now, you reported on this last summer for pro for propublica can you just first describe to us what an injection well is?
0: Yeah, so uh, an oil or gas operation produces a huge amount of uh, liquid waste. Uh, a lot of it's water. It's mixed with chemicals. Some of it's oily water. It's very mineral-intensive um, and contains whatever other additives were, uh, were put into it. Uh, an injection well is essentially just what it sounds like. It's a, a well that operates in reverse, takes that fluid, and stows it away deep underground. Sometimes it's injected back into a geologic formation where it came from which isn't necessarily problematic because uh, you would assume that oil cavern, for example, already has oil and benzene contaminants in it. Um, but probably in about half the cases, uh, it's uh, the fluid is injected back into another porous part of the earth um, where uh, there were no contaminants beforehand. Uh, all of you know these underground areas are full of water. They're all aquifers, technically. So the question is whether they're clean enough to one day be used for drinking water. Um, in California, many of them are, and uh, we're
1: injecting our waste back into those aquifers before we get around to using them for drinking and other purposes. So what did you find in your investigation last summer that you published in ProPublica about these injection wells?
0: Well, we looked first across the country at uh, a federal program that uh, they call it aquifer exemptions. So these are aquifers across the country where um, the EPA has allowed uh, companies and industry to deliberately inject into drinking potential drinking water aquifers. Um, a number of them were in California. And what happened last year in California is the uh, state environmental regulators started to look back at which aquifers they were protecting and which ones um, they weren't protecting. And uh, they realized they were kind of confused. They didn't have good records. They weren't sure which waters were still good and which ones they had allowed to be polluted. And uh, it essentially turned out that several good aquifers were being injected, uh, were having waste injected into them um, by local oil
1: and gas operators. You concluded this piece by saying that three years after the EPA produced a report finding serious flaws in California's injection well program, the state of California had still not completed a review of this injection well program. What's, what's the status of that now?
0: Uh, still to be completed. Um, I understand it's close to happening, but uh, but I haven't, haven't seen that report yet.
1: I'd like to talk a bit about your uh, extensive reporting on fracking now. Fracking is obviously a very divisive issue in the country right now, and it's a word that everyone has heard of. However, in 2008, uh, when you started working on the issue at ProPublica, it wasn't as well known. And when you first went up to the state capital of New York to discuss with environmental regulators who were about to allow fracking to first uh, enter the state, you were sort of surprised by their response. So can you describe these these initial meetings uh, with state environmental regulators yeah,
0: absolutely. There was one meeting in particular. Um, I'd been working already for uh, a short time on this subject, knowing that uh, New York State was considering permitting these wells that would uh, that would involve fracking. Uh, and by this time, I had done a lot of research out west where there is quite a bit of this activity, or was already at that time, uh, and there was a track record of environmental problems. Um, allegations of polluted underground water supplies, polluted surface supplies, spills, uh, leaking waste pits, um, an inability to handle that waste. And uh, so when I met with the regulators in New York State, I essentially asked them about, um, you know, what they would do to prevent those sort of situations, um, not necessarily referencing what I'd found in Colorado and Wyoming, but uh, but asking them, you know, what chemicals were they going to allow to be injected underground near water supplies? Uh, what procedures were in place to handle the waste uh, in New York State especially um, and uh, what other protections they uh, they had in place uh, you know for some of the air emissions and um, and chemical handling dangers that fracking process presents and uh, they essentially couldn't answer those questions and dismiss the risk cause if they they didn't exist they'd been told uh, at, by the industry at that point that it was a relatively safe process and they'd accepted that explanation on its face and um, just weren't aware of the same kind of track record that I was looking at in the western
1: states. This past December, New York State decided to ban fracking, and the reason that Governor Cuomo of New York decided to ban the practice was, and I'm quoting your article here, a clear picture of the impacts and changes that drilling activity would bring have emerged. How has this picture become increasingly clear since 2008? Well, for
0: starters, when that uh, early meeting that I just described happened in New York State and when the state first put uh, a temporary moratorium on on drilling in 2008, uh, not a lot of drilling had happened in Pennsylvania um, that involved fracking. And so uh, for those years in between 2008 and now, what you essentially had was uh, New York standing in place as far as its uh, gas development went and, um, and Pennsylvania uh, sprinting ahead. And uh, essentially, Pennsylvania experienced many of um, you know the, the the worst case concerns that had been expressed uh, through my reporting, through uh, environmental activists and residents out west who had uh, who had faced you know the drilling industry and had a little more experience with it. Um, And that uh, since everybody was already watching as these problems unfolded in Pennsylvania, leaking methane into water wells, uh, spills of of contaminants, uh, explosions in people's homes, uh, ruptured pipelines, um, and and so on, things like that, you know, New York was watching, in some cases from, you know, a mile away, uh, the southern tier of, uh, you know, western New York is where most of the gas would lie and, and where a lot of people hope to develop it. And they were literally looking across the road and watching, you know, wells um, being actively drilled in Pennsylvania and, um, and listening and learning from their
1: experiences. You mentioned a few of kind of a laundry list of concerns that are a byproduct of the fracking process. One that I heard about recently that I hadn't heard of before uh, was that fracking, as well as the injection well process, can cause man-made earthquakes, which was the subject of a feature article in The New Yorker this week. Can you talk about this at all?
0: Yeah, um, to the extent that I've looked at it uh, personally, I found that injection wells that process of disposal of waste uh it's actually well known to cause earthquakes um, so uh segment the conversation. this is a part of the fracking process in that you're disposing of fracking waste um, when you take large volumes of fluid, you put it back underground you're essentially like weighting rock that um, didn't have a lot of weight on it before or unweighting rock that had a lot. Uh, On it previously, and um, those changes uh, can allow faults to slip and fracture, and can allow seismic activity. Um, We've seen earthquakes uh, as high as the mid fives on the on the Richter scale. Some of which have done um, pretty considerable damage. Uh, Not all due to oil and gas injections. Some of them uh, in Oklahoma, yes. Um, Other other kinds of toxic waste injection in Colorado, and elsewhere have also uh, led to earthquakes that have caused quite a lot of damage. There's um, a lot of current research being done to the extent to which uh, fracking itself might also cause seismic activity. Um, and uh, the distinction being uh, the process where you inject uh, less fluids underground, but under higher force, and you actually crack open the rock. Um, so those that process of cracking open the rock is, a, is an explosive process. Uh, I'm hearing from uh, experts I talked to, that it leads to a measurable seismic activity, um, not necessarily one that you might feel in your bedroom or your bookshelf rattling, uh, but it shows up on the Richter scale.
1: Technically, it's an earthquake. So of the safety risks you've investigated, which which of these are the most surprising or concerning to you? The one
0: that interests me most and I think poses the greatest long-term risk uh, is the one that's most difficult to quantify and really... Um, uh, you know, get specific about. And that's the risk, the long-term risk to water supplies underground. Um, There's very little monitoring across the country. There's very little water testing uh, of deep aquifers. Uh, We don't even know, have a very good measure of how much water resources the United States has in these aquifers, let alone what's polluted and what's not. Um, From my research into how uh, geology behaves when uh, when it's fractured deliberately uh, with as many wells as are drilled into some of these drilling areas whether it's Pennsylvania or South Texas or wherever um, it uh, seems quite likely to me and to most of the experts I now talk to that uh, that there's a, a um, that there's a very good chance that those fluids, those chemicals, will move around underground. And when they move around, uh, they don't have to go very far to intersect with or contaminate water resources. We might not know about um, what contamination results uh, for many, many years. Um, I quoted EPA uh, scientists who look at this very question in some of my reporting, um, and, and they've said this might be something that creeps up on us five years from now, ten years from now, or a hundred years from now. Um, there was a... a, a uh, a paper published uh, in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, the journal Groundwater, um, maybe a year and a half ago, that modeled the risk of some of uh, you know some of this in Pennsylvania, and um, and determined there was a very high likelihood that within I think it was the next 50 years that there would be substantial seepage of injected fluids into aquifers that hold water. Um, So this is not the risk that we see every day. If you go to a drilling site, you might see pollution. Uh, This is probably not what you're going to see, and it's not the methane leakage that um, is most dramatic in the headlines every day. Uh, But it's the one, having looked at this for a number of years, that I think really poses the, you know, should be of greatest concern.
1: Recently, at the end of March, the Obama administration announced uh, a new set of regulations uh, for fracking on, on federal lands. And one of these rules addressed open-air waste pits that contain leftovers from fracking. Can you describe just what these open-air waste pits are? Yeah, you take a backhoe
0: out into a field and uh, you dig a big hole. You line it with berms that are a little bit higher on the side than they are in the middle, as if you were essentially digging a swimming pool. Um, Sometimes you line that pit then or that pool with plastic, maybe a sheet of plastic that you could buy at a hardware store, a little bit thicker. Uh, Sometimes you don't line it at all. And then you take all of the residual chemicals that come out of the well, uh, all of the residual oily water, which might be natural but still contains things like benzene, which is a carcinogen, uh, and you dump it in that pit. It's basically just a holding pond uh, until they can uh, until the, the companies that are uh, conducting the operations can move that waste elsewhere or dispose of it differently. Um, but in the time it's in that pit, if that pit's not lined, it seeps right back into the ground. If it is lined with plastic, often there's tears or that, that plastic isn't replaced for many, many years and it degrades and, and again allows seepage. Um, or there's some other other way that, the, you know, those fluids leak into the ground as they're transferred in or out of that pit and so forth. And that's actually been um, the documented source of, of many hundreds of uh, groundwater contamination incidents. So how do these new uh, federal rules address these open air waste pits specifically? So the federal rules addressed uh, drilling that happens on federal lands. It's a small subset of the drilling that happens across the country, but it's not insignificant. It's about 10% of the wells in the country, mostly out west. Um, And among the rules uh, that were announced were that in most cases, uh, probably almost all cases, but with some exceptions, uh, these sorts of waste pits won't be allowed. Um, they'll have to have uh, an above-ground tank, probably a steel tank, uh, that would hold these, these same fluids. They'd be pumped into the tank, removed from that tank into a truck or a pipeline or wherever they need to go. Um, it's a process that costs a little bit more money up front, but, uh, but actually has been shown to be cheaper for both the oil and gas companies and the regulators in the long run uh, and eliminates
1: the vast majority of the risk of, of contamination. You said in your recent piece in ProPublica about Obama's new rules that they have managed to anger both environmentalists and the industry alike. Well, the environmental community would have liked to have
0: seen a ban of fracking and drilling on federal lands. Their argument is that the Obama administration has pursued a policy of lessening climate risk, addressing climate risk by not supporting the extraction of carbon-based fuels and the burning of carbon-based fuels. And they see permitting of more oil and gas wells and allowing fracking on federal lands as contradictory to that policy. Um, they also there's a slew of of technical details that they would have liked to have seen implemented. Uh, I think the environmentalists I talked to are happy, for example, with the waste pit rule, um, but unhappy with the with some of the requirements for how often inspectors would need to go to a, a fracking site before or after fracking happens, um, and little details like that. Basically, they would have liked to see more stringent r- versions of the rules that are put in place. The industry um, argues essentially what's a very familiar refrain, that uh, that the regulations are onerous, that they will cost them so much it will uh, eliminate their ability to profit from drilling for oil and gas, and that the net result of that will be that they won't drill, that they'll go elsewhere where there are no regulations, and that all those American citizens who are employed with or benefit economically from that drilling activity will will miss out, um, so uh a, an argument I, I find kind of specious. The uh the costs of implementing these rules are are fairly minimal, uh even by the American Petroleum Institute's own um own estimates, they would uh perhaps be one percent of the cost of drilling a well and, and well
1: within the profit margins of, of these kind of operations. You describe the new fracking rules as applying to federal lands, which are about ten percent of total uh, lands that are being currently fracked right now in the country, which means the majority of these lands are state-owned or privately owned. So what are the implications for these federal rules on land that is that is not federally owned, that is state-owned or privately owned, or is falling under the regulation of local jurisdiction? Well, they have no direct legal bearing for how um, how uh,
0: drilling is conducted on those, those private or state lands. And um, but they they set a floor and they send a message in several ways. Um, they're not the most stringent regulations out there. There are some states that have more stringent versions of certain parts of these regulations. So it's not that they're uh, uh, the federal regulations are clearly leaders on the issue, um, but they essentially set a baseline that says that some kind of regulation is appropriate almost everywhere uh, at this point. Uh, and also where you have uh, where these regulations are most applicable, places like Wyoming and Colorado, where there is quite Quite a bit of federal land that's adjacent to private land, and the drilling is happening on both, and sometimes in uh, you know in places where um, where those two types of lands are integrated, um, uh, a company is not going to follow one set of regulations on one acre of their pad and a different set of regulations on the other three acres of their pad. Uh, what they'll do is. Um, is fine for themselves, you know, the lowest common denominator, or whatever the denominator is that they choose to adhere to. Maybe it's the highest common denominator, um, but they'll choose uh, a consistent uh, approach to their drilling uh, across all of those lands in a contiguous area. Um, so every little bit of regulation, federal, state, local, whatever, contributes to you know to setting that sort of that baseline uh, and raising the, the, the standard of best practices that these companies will follow.
1: There seems to be a parallel in the approach to fracking as there is in the approach that you described of BP in your previous book, uh, which was about the circumstances that led up to the BP and Deepwater Horizon disaster. Can you start by telling us uh, a few of the things you uncovered about BP management that led to the Deepwater Horizon tragedy? Yeah,
0: big picture about BP, uh, you know, is we found that they essentially had a culture of recklessness, um, that uh, consistently over a period of two decades, they pursued um, policies internal and, uh, and methods of extraction and operation that were aimed at saving as much money as possible, and that um, deliberate, deliberately did that at the expense of the safety of their workers and the safety of the environment. That was explicitly outlined in, uh, in internal BP documents that we used in our reporting. Uh, internal analysis, for example, of the need to repair a refinery facility in South Texas, um, what the risks might be if they didn't repair that facility to both the environment and to lives, uh, it, right down to the level of an email between executives that said, if we don't do something about this, we're likely to kill someone within the next 18 months. Uh, followed six months later by an enormous explosion that did kill fifteen of their workers and emitted um, tons and tons and tons of uh, pollutants, volatile compounds, etc., into uh, you know into the South Texas air. Um, similarly, the the spill in the Gulf of Mexico in two thousand ten was. Um, preceded by similar warnings. There were disagreements between some of the rig hands and the management of those rig hands about how to interpret tests that uh, that, the, that BP's drilling rig had just performed on the well in the Gulf of Mexico. Those tests are specifically intended to evaluate whether uh, there is a risk of the type of blowout that ultimately happened. Uh, and the whole reason is to stop that procedure before you get to the point of, of a blowout. Um, So there is a test, for example, that measures the ability of the well to contain high pressure. And uh, uh, BP's engineers ran that test three times. It failed the first time. It failed the second time. They had an argument about whether to run it again. uh, And they did in the hopes that they could find uh, a result that they could make an argument that it had passed. They did. Um, They interpreted it in a way that they convinced themselves that it was okay, and it was shortly after that that, um, that that well failed to contain the pressure
1: inside of it, and it blew out. The title of your book is Run to Failure. Can you explain what that phrase, run to failure, means in the industry?
0: Yeah, run to failure is uh, a term that I got from BP's mechanics on Alaska's North Slope. And these are the maintenance crews that are charged with uh, testing uh, BP's pipelines for corrosion. And the corrosion is what happens before you get a leak or rupture in those pipelines. Um, BP had an explicit policy laid out in documents and communicated clearly to a number of these mechanics uh, that they called run to failure. And what that essentially means is that the most cost effective way to deal with maintenance is to replace equipment only after it fails, but not before it fails, so that you don't lose whatever that small amount of operating time uh,
1: would be between the replacement and the actual need to replace it. I'm wondering what parallels you see between the culture of BP that led up to the Deepwater Horizon tragedy and any of your investigations into the world of fracking now. You
0: know, I think the greatest commonality between um, what happened in the Gulf of Mexico and what I see happening uh, in fracking or across the drilling industry in general is a, is a preoccupation on um, their the industry's objectives of extracting resources, uh, getting those resources for mainly for the purpose of profit, uh, and um, being more concerned with that than any other implications, whether it's health and safety or environment uh, or rules or compliance or any of those things. Uh, that it, It's not that these people, BP, Halliburton, um, the companies that are drilling gas wells and fracking, really have any deliberate intention to cause harm. Um, I've never seen that. Uh, it's, it's that they can be blinded by their primary objective, which is to get their job done, um, that they either compromise the best intelligence that they're getting about their own facilities uh, or they interpret their data or their engineering picture uh, of what's happening underground to suit their, uh, to suit their needs. Uh, or they dismiss the risk uh, that outsiders can find um, scientific risk or data-driven risk or risk that reporters like me might identify uh, as being less likely uh, because there's uh, because they come from a viewpoint which says that that's uh, either less likely in their experience to happen or inconvenient uh, for their for their larger goals. So there's a, a bit of a uh, sometimes willing and sometimes, um, uh, unconscious blindness to risk.
1: Abram Lesgarten, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Habitations is a production of Sage Magazine at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Our staff includes Ivana Andrade, Jason Daniel Schwartz, and me, Noah Sokol, with production help from the Yale Broadcast Center. Abram Lustgarten visited the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies for Sage Magazine's 2015 Speaker Series on Environmental Investigative Journalism, funded by a Class of 1980 grant. You can subscribe to Habitations in the iTunes Store or through the Yale iTunes U channel. For more information about Habitations and about Sage Magazine, check out sagemagazine.org. And thanks for listening.